Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. Um, this episode is brought to you by me. Uh, I make all uh, podcast episodes free, um, no paywall. Um, but to support the Third Way community, you can become a subscriber and get access to my weekly essays and some other goodies. Um, so thank you for all of the growing list of paid subscribers. They said it couldn't be done and it's happening. So uh, today I'm joined by um, well, you'll notice kind of a theme here in recent guests related to thinking about humanity in maybe a third way or a different way. And so I'm joined today by Naya Diaz. Naya is the executive director of the YWCA of Greater Austin. Naya and I met through two other guests, uh, Liz um, and Ben um, from Uninc. And so welcome. Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much, Naya. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I reached out to you because I've been following your kind of the content you've been putting out. And there's there's a lot of people that do this kind of social impact work um, or they have, they, you know, they, they well, I, I'll put it this way. I've learned that there's a difference between a um, advocate and an activist, you know, an advocate, you know, maybe post some stuff on social media and go to a protest an activist is organizing their life around her or his like convictions. Yeah. And you strike me as an activist in the sense that you are not just, you're actively involved, that's the word activist, in, in creating change in society. Would you agree with that um, description so. of you? Yeah, I, um, I would say that I'm an activist at heart. Um, although I do a lot of advocating activities, but yeah, I think right. uh, my life surrounds itself around activism. So good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the topic for today, based off of your background and also just stuff I'm interested in, is around human dignity. And so I wanted to start off with something. It's a term that I think you use in your LinkedIn bio is where I found it. And it was, it was intriguing, which is, which is um, you use this term intergenerational cycles of harm. And as a lingu language nerd and a linguist, um, you know, there's um, in any industry or any or any sector, there's a lot of rearranging of cliches, a lot of the same sort of, you know, word salad that you hear, whether you're in a nonprofit or you're in, you know, a software company or whatever. When I saw that, I was like, oh, that's a different way to put something. So what are some examples that you have seen in your experience of intergenerational cycles of harm? Yeah, so in the ecosystem that I work with, which is in the nonprofit sector, specifically at the YWCA, um, we work at the intersections of social justice and mental health. So when we talk about intergenerational cycles of harm, you can also um, look at that through the lens of intergenerational inter inter cycles of violence. Um, so I think, you know, an example of that would be that this country was built off of violence and harm, right? Um, and that we hold that as a fundamental, like this is where we are, this is where we are now because of uh, the violence, the harm that's been happening happening um, over and over again. Um, and, you know, one way to start this conversation also is by saying that hurt people hurt people, right? And it happens over and over and over again in different ways, different flavors, different sizes. Um, and you know that that I know I, I you know you talked about the word salad, but I'm gonna have to say it <laughs> that it it okay. comes to trauma, right? Trauma is a, a very overused word, and I want to be careful in using that and saying yeah. 
yeah. one, I'm not a therapist or a coach or anything like that, but I work with um, a handful of therapists that, you know, use this word carefully and mindfully um, to talk about it when we talk about intergenerational cycles of harm. Um, and that I would say, I would advocate that trauma, that we live in a trauma-based society. Uh, trauma spreads through families, it spreads through communities and societies. We pass it on to those around us and to those that come after us. It informs our cultural norms, uh, our family dynamics, our community values, much of our current culture and much of the cultural divides that we see right now are built around trauma and then codified in institutions, which is when then you get systemic trauma, systemic intergenerational cycles of harm. Um, so that's one way to start that. Um, and um, I'll say, you know, in our in my ecosystem that I live in, uh, we also use this term to describe violence as a way to say that there's this power over paradigm that we're trying to kind of riddle out of and we're trying to crack that code of like trying to do more power with instead of the power over. Um, and when we talk about intergenerational cycles of harm, it's trying to understand the power over paradigm. Um, and then how do you like disrupt that? Right. Um, so, um, you know, um, when, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of define inter intergenerational trauma. It's basically trauma that's passed down generation to generation. It's exasperated and wounded people. Um, it, it exacerbates people. And then it, it, and that exasperation wounds other, you know, mm -hmm. children and then so on and so forth. Um, I'm going to actually quote um, one of my favorite therapists on this topic uh, who talks about intergenerational trauma. His name is Resma Mekamen. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he has a book called My Grandmother's um, Hands, okay. and um, he says, bodies with unhealed trauma tend to build on one another, much like white colonizers turn their own trauma onto native enslaved people. Traumatized parents, just like that, and caretakers are also likely to cause abuse to their children. And then he also, he goes on to say that, you know, these, he can kind of support that theory by saying that recent studies demonstrate that when we pass trauma on through our genetics, there's unprocessed trauma, which leaves um, epigenetic biomarkers that gets inherited by the next generation, impacting DNA, nervous systems, the trickle effect of generations of trauma and toxic stress has resulted. And it's what Resma calls, you know, we are now left with a sea of bodies with unhealed trauma. Right. And so that's kind of where I hope that answers that question. <laughs> yeah, it does. And yeah. it's an interesting perspective too. Um, just circling back on a couple of things. One is that I'm with you on the overuse of the word trauma. One of my favorite books is The Coddling of the American Mind. Yeah. Um, and it really, you know, skewers this thing that what we call um, what we call trauma is not often trauma. In order for it to be trauma, it has to actually affect the neuroplasticity of your mind. Right. And um, also... Uh, and so, yes, I'm with you on not overusing that word. Um, and then the other is this, this um, tra tragic uh, and horrific pattern um, that in this country, we have always seemed to make plenty of space for angry white men to do violent things. Yes. And, and it's not a condemnation. I don't have, I don't have 
white guilt. I have white embarrassment, maybe, but not white guilt. Um, I, and, but I'm a, I am a, I'm a realist. Like there's this, this, this intergenerational trauma. Um, it, 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 it does obviously have, um, it's, it's, it's not, it's just, it's passed on, as you said, and it's passed on in the sense of both behavior and then like, uh, epigenetic tendencies. Right. Um, and I see that, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, a rural, Amer I come from rural America um, and I don't have a college degree. I identify not really a Christian, but someone who believes in Jesus. I'm uh, a straight guy, like all of those. I, I, by all accounts, I should be, you know, 73% of me that make that list are Trump supporters, as an example. And, and, and so what I have done in, in my examination of these of intergenerational of these intergenerational uh, trauma cycles or cycles of harm is I see it related to, um, I think what JD Vance was trying to do until he fucked it up with his, um, you know, his endorsement of, you know, he called Trump American Hitler and now he gets his endorsement and, you know, yeah. all of that, where he was trying to point out the intergenerational trauma within like rural white culture. Um, and that's something that's near near and dear to me because of you know where I'm from yeah. um and I think another one that you see is the um maybe it's not trauma but it's it, it Ronald Reagan referred it to the uh, soft tyranny of low expectations um and this soft tyranny of low expectations that creeps into sectors of society to that pa passes on hopelessness to their children. Yes. Um, passes on victim victimhood to their children, um, and that seems to be rampant as well. But I think you nailed it when you talk about the intersection of mental health and social justice. It really does boil down to mental health. Yeah. Um, and we have a our systems are punitive, and our systems are shame based, and neither of those things are good to attract people that may not know otherwise to therapy. So, right. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of times um, when you look at therapy, you think of it as, you know, something that happens one-to-one, -one. you're having like an internal reflection of the self. Um, but I would, we advocate to, to look at something further than that. Like you yeah. advocate for what's happening within yourself because of systemic harm. Mm -hmm. um, for them, at least for the people that we serve, we, we mostly serve people that live in poverty, um, black and brown communities, people that have been harmed, domestic violence, all those things. Um, and sometimes people want to put blame on themselves because that's what they've been told that they needed to do, right? Um, and that's not necessarily true. I think it's also just trying to advocate, and I don't want to use the word educate, I'm going to use the word advocate here, mm -hmm. um, because you advocate for the person to be empowered to have agency over those knowings about themselves, right? Um, and sometimes um, it's hard. It's hard to just to say, you know, I live in this in this this way, or I have, you know, I live in extreme poverty. I I face microaggressions, racial microaggressions every day. Um, and and let me talk about how that makes me feel. But let's talk about how that makes you feel because of you know a four hundred year mm -hmm. colonized you know, enslaved country that we've, we've had, um, and that it's shown up in different ways in different forms. Um, and then that, sh that shifts the conversation completely. P I, you know, just seeing people 
aha moments around that is, is beautiful, you know, just because you have to look at that. You have to look at that nasty thing, um, to kind of move on. I know, I know Justin, I see a lot of your content. It's all about like, let's look at the nasty thing to move on into this beautiful transformative place. And that's what I'm all about. Yeah. Yeah. It's the dichotomy, what I call the dichotomy of the past. Yeah. Which is you have to touch your wounds. If you look at like inner child uh, work as an example, some, you know, breakthrough stuff over the last two decades around inner child work, you have to touch your wounds, but you can't dwell that the dichotomy is you can't dwell in the past or it doesn't ever become the past. Right. You know, thus the term break the cycle. Um, And I I think the thing that my work is, is in just mentoring and, and writing, speaking, whatnot, is that just reminding everyone you do have a choice that the people in the shittiest situations like Viktor Frankl in a concentration camp or Nelson Dan- Ma- Nasa Mandela or Hurricane Carter or, or Admiral Stockdale um, you know, or Gandhi, you could go down the list and they all discover the same thing, which is you do get to choose your mindset no matter your situation. Yes. But if you don't know you can do that, that's why I say um, if, you cannot be, if you cannot apply critical mind to your beliefs, then someone else is controlling you. And so... That kind of leads into my next question to for us to kick around, which are, what are two or three um, major changes that you would make to our current systems to kind of ensure or promote human dignity? So we're, we're going to be uh, yeah. king and queen for a day. And what would be <laughs> some things that you would change? Oh, man. I, I, I mean, are you sure there's not a hundred things I can talk about? Yeah, no. Um, well, I would say that, you know, you know, speaking of overused terms, I think right now, uh, when I think about human dignity, I think about, you know, um, not confusing it with like things like, you know, people are like, oh, diversity, equity, and inclusivity. And then everybody wants to do that for the last two years because of cultural reckoning. Um, I actually kind of go beyond a little bit more than that, which is why I use words like human dignity and human potential, um, because things like DEI don't actually look at the emotional or the the mental health that goes within that structure, within that DEI model that people try to put out. So I do go beyond a little bit more than that. Um, You know, dignity in essence is when you use your inherent voice and, and, and it's respected and it's honored. Um, Me, for example, I'm a woman of color. I'm a, a Mexican American, Latinx, Chicanx, there's a lot of labels for people like myself. <laughs> um, but, you know, I hold a p- position of power. I'm an executive director to a nonprofit. And even myself, I feel sometimes that's a little overwhelming. It's a little like, you know, um, I hate to use this overword, overused word too, but imposter syndrome can kind of kick in all these things because. And I, you know, I, I can say all the self-affirmations, I can say all these things, but I think there's this intergenerational thing at play that, you know, that my mother and my grandmother, and I mean, I can have memories of my family and the cultural norms that I've lived in that, that inform the power that I'm in right now and that I question it all the time. And that I'm not the only one that that happens to. There's, you know, other women of color, uh, whether they're Black or Latinx or, you know, Asian Pacific Islander, a lot of different people that I know that are also um, in this type of role um, that share that experience, you know? And so we go back to that human dignity place. So I would say that uh, one of the things that I do and advocate for is that we move away from 
you know, um, diversity, equity, and inclusivity is is beautiful as a, as a thought. But again, I don't think it 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 raises the issue or it doesn't bring in um, that piece of dignity or or. And I I would even say that dignity has two friends: it's justice and belonging, right? So there's this social justice piece that we've been talking about, but there's also this this thing about belonging somewhere, uh, which I don't think DEI actually, um, they talk about inclusivity as a way to like, uh, you know, bring it in with like um, diversity and like trying to bring in um, people of color into spaces so that they can check off check marks, uh, check boxes off yeah. of checklist. Um, and that's not what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go beyond, way beyond that. Um, so, um, you know, like, again, if I had a Venn diagram, it would be, you know, dignity, justice, belonging. And then somewhere in the middle, you would have like, like a word name, like liberation, right? Like you want to be liberated because you do have human dignity. You do have a, a self of, of um, a form of justice that's being played out. And then there's um, belonging and that you belong in the collective, that you do actually have a voice that can be heard and that it's valuable. Um, and that it's an, an equal playing ground than, you know, the story we've been told around white colonizing, right? That that eventually I want to work myself out of a job so that I don't have to be talking about this, so right. that I can say that we all belong, right? So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So I would say I would say that too. Um, and I would also say that one of the one of the things I would advocate for systems to do. Um, Systems need to create safe societies, um, you know, sense of, of being physically, psychologically, emotionally secure, having all your basic needs met in ways that don't cause harm or exploitation. Mm -hmm. um, also, systems need to advocate for those historically harmed and promote personal agency. I think reparations is, is a valid um, request from people of color that have been historically harmed. Um, you know, the ability to make a decision, have choices like those who are in places of privilege and experience reasonable consequences for that decision, like having equal playing field so that choices made can be one that gets one out of not living in poverty or the ability to get an education, things like this, and then disrupting patterns that give you more empowered form of agency. And um, yeah, and then, you know, systems that make it their business to promote a culture of dignity and belonging, which, which creates a world where there's a sense of power and worthiness not based on harm or dehumanization. Right. Um, so yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it's all about being in meaningful relationship with other people, uh, you know, the planet, the spirit of, of the world, of other people right. and the collective, other living beings. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah I think um, I'll, I'll, I'll nominate two things. Um, one is I'm gonna borrow a term from my, my partner, Virginia, uh, who is a Latina and an activist as well. And she has this, um, this philosophy slash coaching methodology called Indomable. And it's about, it's at the intersection of um, mindset or mind mastery and social justice. Basically, if you want to change the world, you got to get your mental shit together. Um, or because when you go fight a system, the system will fight back. Right. But that could be true if you're just trying to, you know, get, a new new accounting software put into your you know bank or you or you're trying to you know in systemic racism you know what right. it, that that the system will fight back and so one of the the first trait of indomable is critical thinking the policy shift i would make is i think it was back in the early 80s we removed critical thinking 
and philosophy from schools. Yeah. It made it an elective. And so there's no coincidence if you go to a private school, um, and especially if it's a non-religious private school, um, they teach critical thinking. And those kids have a very different perspective on what's on reality, let's just say. And, and so critical thinking allows you then to hold two things to be true at the same time. For example, America is a fucking awesome place, but not for everybody. You know, that, that's, the, that's the thing that we can have those kind of conversations again. Critical thinking also allows you to like, you and I may have a policy difference on something, but we, but we agree on the problem as an example. That critical thinking allows you to do that as well. The second is more, much more political policy, which is we need to totally revamp our political system in the sense of we got to get rid of primaries. We got to reduce the influence of political parties because here's the kind of the dirty secret of all this. These power structures that are causing the intergenerational harm are promoted through democratic processes. Um, and so, you know, they, they're in the, in the sense of you know, it's not an authoritarian government deciding things. It's people through a representative government electing people that harm other people. Um, right. That's that's what happens. And that we elect dehumanizing people that that are apologists for the system. Right. But that's largely related to money. And so if you if you change the primary system, you shorten the election cycle. So there's a primary and a general election. It all has to happen in six six months. Um, and that reduces this, it, 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 I think this is why you see people on, you know, the MAGA Republicans in particular are big fans of voter suppression, you know, that because it's that direct, if you can directly change the system by electing different people, you, we have this, we have the infrastructure to do that. We just are using it wrong, in my opinion. So, yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting, um, I hadn't actually thought of it that way specifically i mean i i i have been thinking of ways of you know when i think of human dignity and politics you know i always think of how people are referred to as subjects or numbers or objects yep. bottom lines right yep. um and um you know people are people right you know culturing the culture of valuing people as people i still I don't know what that, you know, what that looks like um, when it, when when we're talking about politics because I I do think that there's a lot of, um, I mean there's a lot of things I advocate through policy and um, the policies. I mean I work with what I have, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean it's a different conversation to say if I had it my way I would have all these different things work out a different way or a fundamental infrastructure would be it would look very different. Um, but if you just take a, take a look at the um, Texas legislation, right, where, you know, they're banning books and reproductive yes, exactly. rights are an issue and voter suppression is, you know, talk about gerrymandering yep. the hell out of Texas, right? So um, they, they can do that. Yeah, they can do that because people keep electing them. Right. And they keep getting elected because of the power structure to, to you know, that encourages that. And you see this on the on the left, too. I mean, you know, you see the corruption and, you know, places like New York and New Jersey, California is a terribly run state from an economic standpoint. Um, but, and that's, you know, heavily progressive in its policies, but poorly run because again, power structure, um, the, the power structures do not make room for actual differences of views that then create 
that produces creative tension. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, again, these are things we could have, you know, week-long conferences about, um, <laughs> but we're, put, we're jamming them into a, you know, 30 plus minute podcast. Yeah. <laughs> the last question is that I wanted to throw out is, what is, um, what's the role, or maybe I would rephrase it a little bit too, what is one thing um, that business leaders can do to promote human dignity? I mean, I think human dignity needs to be a core value. I mean, I think, you know, I don't hear, I don't hear the word human dignity enough to say that I've, I've, I think it's a core value. I think if people use it as a core value, um, it can change the course for better good. I mean, really thinking about like when you're doing envisioning or like mission statements and stuff like that, you're yep. thinking about what it means, you know, to meet the moment's time. And then how do you see, you know, your core values playing out over an extended amount of time. So I think that that would be um, something I think nonprofits should be thinking about just core values around human dignity. Um, I think it, 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 it also brings up you know, when you do that, it, you have an opportunity to change the old models of looking at like charity-based systems or bottom line cultures, um, where much of it is built around a checklist, like I said earlier, or a series of transactional and performative changes, instead of, um, you know, creating a, a, a culture of, or a climate and culture that allows everyone to reach their full potential and thrive. In essence, this is where you can really promote one's human dignity, because um, you're, you're giving them an opportunity to to voice out or to express themselves or manifest the strengths, gifts, and talents that, you know, that they want to be able to express. Um, I can go into this a lot longer, <laughs> Justin, yeah. just so you know. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, kind of going into that, I think there is a lot to be said about how just in America as a first world country, you know, I'm not even talking about, you know, the global South, um, but, you know, the majority of us don't live in, in work environments or places of businesses where we are valued and that they don't put value on our strengths, our skills, our talents and the way that we can show up in the world. So I think there, there still needs to be a lot of work around that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a psychological place for that as well. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of where I'm landing with that right now. <laughs> if that yeah. if that helps, yeah. Yeah, it does. And you know, my I'm, I I work in the I am I'm I'm a capitalist and entrepreneur, and I think that the one of the big things is, um, I think, I think there's a spiritual calling that happens with everybody that is this move from goal orientation to say impact orientation. Yeah. I think everyone is called to do that. But very few people actually accept the call. And what I want, what I would love to see in business for especially older, established, very successful business leaders or business business organizations, but especially the founders of the, you know, the executive teams is a concentrated effort to use your privilege and status and, and, and muscle to actually change things. Because here's the reason it works. Um, you know, we can shit on Bill and Melinda Gates and all this, but they've done amazing work in the world. And Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce and his work to eradicate homelessness in San Francisco, like actually deal with it, not just move them to, a, you know, another suburb. And then my recent favorite one is Mark Cuban and his new Cost Plus RX company. 
Um, okay. That is definitely got, it's not a, a B Corp, but it serves in this idea that he wants, and he was, I heard him interviewed and he was, he was, the podcaster was like, why are you doing this? Is it for profit? He goes, oh, we got to make some money. And he goes, is it for social good? He goes, oh, we, everything we try to do is social good. And he said, well, why are you doing it then? He goes, because I like to fuck shit up. <laughs> and I think there's an element of that. Like, let's use your place yeah. to do things. I, uh, and I'm a history nerd. And I harken back to almost every library that we have in existence that's an older library mm-hmm. came from the Carnegie Foundation right. and Andrew Carnegie. And you look at other um, institutions of, or of wealth and that there was an expectation in that era to give back to society. It was the, and we, and we've, we've kind of lost that other than as tax shelters. And again, there are many entrepreneurs and founders and wealthy people doing amazing things with their, with, with, and and creating a lot of impact. I, I pointed out, at least in the United States, I don't think, I don't think this is true outside the U.S., that most of the significant social change that's happened in the last 20 years has come from the business sector. Um, it, It was the, it was the, you know, the, the, the push from the business sector, because in the business, business sector, they're like governors, you know, they have to be somewhat pragmatic other than yeah. our governor is kind of a nut job frequently, but yeah. um, they, they, there's a level of pragmatism there and social pressure and market pressure are the same thing. But I, I hope, and I'm hopeful that if more and more business leaders listen to their hearts and accept that call, that we will use business to, um, rehumanize people. Um, and I think it can be done. John Mackey wrote about this at length in conscious capitalism as well. Yeah. I, um, I have that book. I like that book too. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's why, you know, from a third way standpoint, I don't think corporate capitalism and the way things are, you know, that what, what, what Virginia calls exploitative capitalism is the answer. We're like, we just keep doing the same thing. Yeah. Nor do I believe in, especially in the United States and the way we're structured in socialism. Um, I, I do believe that there is this natural mixed relationship between business, government, education. And you can see it happening in places like Austin or Salt Lake City or Boise, Idaho, where those three groups of people have gotten together and they're doing amazing things in the community. Yeah. And it can be done, but we have to be able to agree on the same problem, that there is a problem because that's where it starts to fall apart. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I would also, I would also advocate that um people that are in living in poverty or that you know get affected by this most of the time um you know decisions that are being made in higher places and it trickles down to people in the, in the but i think there's a shift there too that the people that are at the grassroots level that are at ground zero are being are being in places where decisions are being made and and that's also i feel like that's also kind of moving the needle a little bit more too right um and that 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 relates back to human dignity for me at least, right? right. So, yeah. yeah. And I think I think that I had my the guest I had on early uh, last week was um, I don't know if you know her work Monica Guzman, um, also a Latina Mexican um, Mexican American. Um, I know her. Yeah. Yeah. So you can look at the last episode and listen. Yeah. And she's got a great book called "I Never Thought About That Way," um, okay. which is around depolarization. Okay. And she's way nicer than I am about this because I think <laughs> that part of the reason we have polarization is that there that we have this expectation that all ideas have the same merit. Mm-hmm. And if you're a flat earther, your ideas are not 
don't have the same merit as you know scientific based ideas as an example you have the right to have your stupid opinions but what sometimes makes things polarizing is the um, unwillingness to have a conversation about how dangerous and ridiculous your ideas are yeah. after critical mind yeah and um anyway her her point to all of that is if we can sit down and have more conversations you know part of dignity is like if we can get back to a place where we just disagree as yeah. opposed to hate each other that would be awesome <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah that, that would be awesome yeah well and i think there's there's a lot to be said about what happens in those conversations about not liking what other people say but at least you can say it right like you can call it what it is like i don't like what you're saying um and then there and then you know there's a whole conversation that can be had about consensus building um right. and that's you know i don't know how to start that conversation but i think we're kind of like not in a we're in the end here of this conversation. So yeah. we can have another one of you on yeah. later about yeah. consensus building, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. So, awesome. yeah. So let's end it there. Um, you're, that was fascinating. It was super fast. And thank yeah. you. Yeah. Great. Thank you for having me. This was great. I, I'm, you've, you've triggered a lot of my, you piqued my interest in a lot of things. I'll be uh, looking at some of the things you mentioned and going to look it up. Awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. Thank, you so much. <laughs> thank you, Justin.